0: Uh, like a one-off podcast or have you been doing some podcasting
1: is this a series or so this is an internship that I had for the summer um it's New Roots which is an organization in my hometown um, of like Eagle Valley Colorado um and they're kind of like a food middleman in ways of connecting different organizations and bringing them together. Um, They have some community gardens that they maintain and they also um, were working during the pandemic, you know, when farms had so much surplus.
2: You're listening to the New Roots
1: Community Radio Hour.
2: Welcome to the New Roots Community Radio Hour. For some, it has been a long year of isolation through the pandemic, and we've all seen drastic changes to our lives. The New Roots podcast has been no exception in those terms. It has been a long year being cut off from safely accessible ways to record this show, but with the help of our first ever intern, Barrett, we have been able to create a two-part show for you. Barrett is an Eagle River Valley local who grew up in the High Rockies before going out to Washington State for college. Her interest in the environment and food led her to meeting with the New Roots team, and we're incredibly blessed and excited to have her as a part of our team as she works her way through school. In part one, you'll meet Paul and his wife, Jane, and get a brief history of them and their world of permaculture. In part two, Barrett will delve deeper into the history of permaculture, including some of the solutions it can provide, and some of the ways that permaculture has remained a part of the problem. I hope you all enjoy listening to these episodes as much as I did while converting them into the podcast format.
1: Well, it's so good to finally semi-meet you guys. I've heard a lot about you. Jane, I don't know if you remember, but uh, my boyfriend, his name is Eric, and he went up there with Philip and them and he wrestled pigs with you guys and helped you carry them to a neighbor house, which he- Of course. Uh, okay, cool. Talk about that. He said it was the most funny hat at college, which I think is quite funny.
0: <laughs> Not quite real college, but uh, yeah. No, that was great.
2: That'd be quite the way to start off with college. Um, Can we go from there and start off with introductions of yourselves?
0: So my name is Jane Campbell, and I am one of four adults and three youngsters who lives at Queen Mountain Homestead in Bellingham, Washington. I also own a landscaping and tree care business called Beauty Land and Tree Care. I have a partner in that. So that's what I do professionally. Uh, homestead farming, a little bit of selling of produce and flowers from here, and taking care of a toddler, and uh, hanging out with uh, any students Paul brings home from <laughs> school, and then doing the local landscape and tree care stuff in, in Bellingham. Okay.
3: And my name's Paul Kearsley. Uh, I'm one of the one of the four or five adults on Queen Mountain. Um, I also work as an instructor up at Western and teach in a couple different capacities, but mostly uh, design drawing and then sustainable design and ecological design. And uh, have a design consultancy as well uh, named Terra Phoenix Design and have been working for 10 or 12 years doing um, integrated site and systems design for off-grid homesteads and uh, eco-villages. And yeah, here uh, at our place, we've just been on land for four years now um, and getting a lot of uh, systems established like orchards and animal systems and gardens and infrastructure associated with all of that. So yeah, keep them busy.
1: Um, and um, can you guys take me back to the beginning of what got you guys into permaculture.
3: Mm-hmm. Sure. So for me, uh, it was in undergrad. Well, I guess in a certain way, it's always been um, an interest in life sciences and just like the world around us. But um, in undergrad, I was studying industrial design or product design and uh, had a lot of fun with those skills, but didn't really like the questions that were being asked. And so got really turned on by a minor that was in sustainable design. And through that kind of, um, yeah, found my way into uh, the, the permaculture side of things. And following um, the undergrad program, uh, did a two-year apprenticeship at the Bullocks Homestead in, uh, on Orcas Island. Um, and then from there, I've been working with them for over a decade now. Uh, And it was kind of a, one of those little rabbit holes where it's like, hey, that's an interesting idea. And, you know, 10 years, 12 12 years later, you're raising pigs and chasing chickens.
0: I think it's true what Paul referenced, just being interested in life sciences as a kid. Uh, I think for both of us, we've realized the more we get into this, that just, Having access to outdoor spaces to play when we were kids, that that made a huge impact. So I had a forest that I was always hanging out in and pretending that uh, logs were animals that I was harvesting meat off of and things like that. Vivid imagination, and then I had the opportunity also as a kid to live in a community. It was a church community, but uh, my parents and a bunch of other adults from our church built a development together. And so there was a lot of just running in and out of other people's homes. And the more I live communally now as an adult, I think about how that experience left an imprint, and I think made it easier to to do what we're doing because um, there's just yeah a, a blueprint essentially. So there's that. And then I was studying. I went into university and started studying uh, geography and environmental science, physical geography and kept wanting a little bit more insight into human beings and why we do the things we do. Um, you know, how do we solve problems and how do we, how to create, how do we create problems for ourselves and others that led me into anthropology, which was a really amazing and rich experience, uh, and and brought home even more the significance of uh, human interactions and culture. And as I, as I went further into that, I, uh, became increasingly curious about how I could step out of not just research and study and understand systems of oppression and dominance and exploitation, which was part of my studies, but how I could begin to step out of that and found some examples from anthropology from around the world, uh, inspirational, um, just in terms of people living in ways that were different than um than what I had grown up with and so i so through that inspiration of okay how do i step out of a system that's really exploitative uh i began to be curious about food systems and how i could grow food and live on land myself and so i ended up taking a gardening class at a community college after graduating and hearing the word permaculture and the idea it was it was explained to me initially as a as really being about permanent agriculture and permanent culture that that's what that word was supposed to connote and I really talked to the idea that at its founding it was looking both at the physical systems and then also the invisible cultural systems, and so continued to. Explore and then also through that found out about you know the the regional leading example of this permaculture tradition in the northwest is the Bullock's homestead and so they came up pretty quick and so just heard more and more about them and then eventually got myself over to their site and ended up living there for three years so awesome um so that's
1: a perfect lead-in um about just wanna I wanna ask about the books homestead and could you pos, both of you possibly tell me more about it?
3: So their site is probably 35 or 37 years in the making. Mm-hmm. It's about 20 acres. Um and three families uh all moved there together and um yeah throughout the course of a number of different years um, started to develop the land and then also develop a you know a community um, where they you know brought in a lot of people and tried to educate anyone who was interested in learning these types of skills whether it was horticulture or uh, carpentry or sort of um, plumbing yeah and kind of this uh, continuation of the you know they would. Certainly agree. Continuation of sort of some of that hippie ideal of back to the landing and they were kind of on the tail end of the 60s and um, in the from the California area and uh, Had an opportunity to really kind of put a lot of that stuff to to the test and are one of um, a handful of sites throughout the Northwest uh, where they were able to continue and, you know, it was kind of this offshoot of that back to the land movement of the 60s. But um, what does it look like, you know, 30, 30 or 40 years later? Uh, so then they currently run a skill building sort of apprenticeship program with 10 or 12 new uh, participants every year. And that includes living on the land for nine months, living in community, learning all kinds of skills from mechanical stuff to plumbing to plant care to animal husbandry. And, um, and then, you know, sometimes people will return for a second or third year even uh, And on top of all that they they run a number of different courses, such as uh, two week intensive permaculture design course and shorter introductory courses um, and so on. But they've, they've definitely become a, uh, like Jane said, one of the reg- one of the regions. If not the the countries, um, you know, foremost sites of what this stuff looks like uh, when sort of practiced over uh, decades and, and now generations.
0: And in terms of the 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 area, part of what drew them to the site where they've ended up living for almost forty years now,
1: is on Orcas Island, correct? Yeah, so
0: the so they're on Orcas Island and the the islands, the San Juan and Gulf Islands, which are, it's really the same island chain, but of course there's a international border cutting them into two different regions. Anyway, Um, so so they were drawn there because there's an interesting, uh, there's a few interesting features to it. There's a climactic feature where the Olympic Peninsula juts out into, into the Pacific and creates a rain shadow. And so the, the islands, many of the islands, end up having this much drier climate than is typical of the Pacific Northwest. And you, where their site is, they, they're able to just, the geography of the, of the 10 to 20 acres, lends itself to creating many different microclimates, which then they have been able to kind of accelerate with, with different things, different different strategies and techniques. Uh, but, in the, but in the early, before colonization, there was an extremely rich uh, horticultural practices throughout this area. And the Coast Salish were able to trade very easily because of all the connecting waterways, they can move around in, in canoes and um, and have have these these rich food systems. And when the early settlers came in, they also made use of the waterways and, and the microclimates. And the, yeah, and the microclimates and the the Washington State reputation for being an apple growing region was actually due in large part to the orchards that proliferated in the San Juans. And then uh, the, those the, that fruit that was grown was able to be moved very easily on the waterways to Seattle and Bellingham and um, further down the coast even. So the Bullocks had some sense of that. When they first showed up, they saw all the old orchard sites that were kind of you know, derelict. They'd been, they'd been. Many of them had been abandoned. But they got this sense: okay, this is a good place to be. To be trying to do what we want to do, which is uh, create a food system that can last for generations and have a lot more stability.
3: So yeah, the land and the the islands in particular were sort of a breadbasket for the growth of Seattle, um, and they that wasn't uh, that was definitely a part of their their landing there. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and that's a good lead-in, uh, speaking of the Coast Salish people, of what, is, what was permaculture before it was permaculture? And
3: how would you guys describe it? Yeah. Um, We've been thinking about this and talking about it a bit uh, lately over the past couple of months and then also as, uh, you know, in the context of this, this conversation. Um, and it's, a, it's an interesting question, and, and in, in a sense, like, permaculture wasn't permaculture before permaculture was permaculture, for a lot of a made-up word. Um, and I think to, to understand a bit of it, um, you know, the, the term and the whole concept came out of the uh, Tasmania, and sort of Bill Mollison and David Holmgren working at a university down there, and and in the context of this uh, massive change that they were seeing in terms of the industrialization and kind of the uh, the chemicalization of the of the agricultural systems that they were that they'd grown up with. Um, so Tasmania is an island itself, and was kind of this isolated, fairly self-sufficient little community. Um, and they watched this green revolution, this post World War II. Chemical engineering, industrial engineering, and agricultural engineering revolutions start to change the fabric of their community and so permaculture itself kind of developed as a response to that so it 's kind of interesting because you, i don 't think it's or it 's a little bit of a misnomer to try and take it out of that context as a reaction to industrialization um, and I think prior to the invention of that word or or of any of these systems um, You know, there was there are many different instances of of fairly permanent cultures. Um and you know, what were they what were they? They were they were Hopi, they were Salish, they were uh Seminole, they were um uh Gaul and Celtic and uh Turkish and um Tartar and you know any of these any indigenous culture in a sense that had proliferated in a region for, you know, we can come up with some benchmark time frame of, you know, uh, 900 years. Um, and if you can live for 900 years in a bioregion and manage your economy and manage your nutrients, then maybe you've achieved a degree of permanence. Uh, but yeah, I think the, the term permaculture, it, I think it's a been helpful for me, even in the re- in light of this conversation, to contextualize it as a as a reaction to industrialization and sort of a way to kind of push back and resist some of that, um, you know, for for all the the pros and cons that that comes with.
0: And and industrialization, not you know, like what's problematic about industrialization? Part of what and Paul said they saw the fabric of their communities changing. Part of that has to do it with degradation, which I think is a huge, huge, that's, that's why, you know, there was a reaction to industrialization, that they were seeing the degradation, of uh, community relations, the degradation of soil, and, uh, you know, eventually climate, and all all sorts of things, and so that, you know, where it's like the, the biggering and biggering uh, creates uh, on, is on one side and on the other, is the depletion um that can't be sustained indefinitely and so yeah uh, yeah and there's all kinds of problems with the word permaculture <laughs> <laughs> that, that we can touch on uh, and that paul and i talk about a lot and and not just the word but some of the the way it has panned out um, and i would just say also that You know, permaculture does take inspiration from pre-colonial societies. Yeah, pre-colonial ways of life, and it can never be pre-colonial. It is inherently a post-colonial thing, and therefore is riddled with, you know, all sorts of demons that go along with uh, the colonial project, um, and yeah, and so it's sort of, <clears throat> and and that's you know strengths and weaknesses I suppose because part of what I would argue is you know maybe could be a, could be a strength for permaculture and just kind of in a post-colonial globalisation globalised world where the acceleration of sharing of information and sharing of cultural practices is, is huge. Um, you see that in, in the, in the way that that permaculture teaches different techniques. It's just a crazy mishmash from all over the world. It's, it's like just pulling from all, all different traditions. And, you know, what can be problematic about that is that, traditions aren't getting proper acknowledgement and credit and respect and it also maybe perhaps practices are decontextualized and, and therefore not used really in, appropriate, in an appropriate way. And then the strength arguably is, you know, look at this amazing array of techniques that we can, that we can draw upon and share, you know, if it's you know, like, could it be framed as, a, as more of a sharing rather than a taking? Uh, but that, that is part of the concern that there's
1: been, that there's been some taking (laughs) of wisdom. Um, that's definitely something I was hoping to dive into, which I know you guys are very, um, conscious of the term was coined by, um, white men and Mm -hmm. also that, um, but learned observed from indigenous communities in Tasmania and um, I was hoping to talk more about the history and also like you touched on and dive into that more problematic side and get back to the more positive side um, later of how the history it would seem that permaculture and the way that we we're learning it for example and I'm in university and my friends are learning permaculture through university and paying tuition. Um, and is that in the way that we're learning it is seems as though an ironic form of gentrification. Um, and in the sense that we have gotten ourselves into a problem with climate change and the way we produce food, and now we're circling back to um, like, for example, in California, how they're saying that all this land is burning and these forests are burning, but had the original stewards of the land continued to be stewards of the land, then yeah. this would have happened at all. Um, and because those people were displaced and um, we are now having burning lands and... Um, how to control burning versus the... Yeah
0: the the why is burning of actually know
1: how fire and forest work together yeah yeah so would you guys like to uh dive into that a little more
3: yeah um there's an interesting parallel in 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 a number of the courses we teach uh and jane um helps me teach quite a bit uh, so in a number of the courses we teach, um, trying to teach systems thinking and patterns and pattern recognition and such. And I think the, the, the parallels between something like gentrification uh, and succession are really helpful concepts to understand in terms of uh, systems and, and kind of how a, a movement would sort of change an environment Um, whether that's a social environment or or a built environment, and then turn around and have that environment change itself. And what I'm kind of getting at is a conversation that we've been having about sort of the history of permaculture. And um, in its inception was, you know, kind of this weird, fringy thing that some leftover hippies were starting to talk about in the 70s and into the 80s. Mm -hmm. And and in a big way, um, was fundamentally countercultural. Um, and I think as time progresses and the, some of the narratives of our culture have, have um, been more deeply established, um, that countercultural kind of approach has has in, in a way uh, presented itself even more so. Just the concept of repairing uh, repairing old stuff um, is a very permaculture kind of thing to do. Uh, we do a lot of repair around here, um, and the our cultural whatever you want to call it, zeitgeist of the time is like, well, no, if it's broken, you should just buy a new one. That's better for the economy, right? And and if you get a new one, it's just it's probably worth it. Um and so it was a very countercultural thing of sort of providing for yourself, taking care of your own needs, becoming a generalist versus a specialist. Um and then in that in that countercultural approach, it it attracted a particular type of person. Um, and these were some of the permaculture pioneers and in parallel to the process of ecological succession these pioneers had to be kind of um a, a particular type of person they had to be uh
0: we don't know what they had <laughs> to be but what we've observed is that they
3: were those <laughs> that they were uh, scrappy
0: scrappy, scrappy kind of roughness.
3: and kind of hardy and they were um able yeah. to kind of not always tactful not always tactful uh, able to handle some um you know judgment and and being an outsider comparable to pioneer plants like uh thistles and dandelions that are growing out in hard packed soil um and in a way uh, a totally necessary ecological niche to fill right and they um they provide a lot to the landscape um, but then they also are pretty good at kind of keeping keeping things at bay um, and in another sense the the context in which it was created and what we were just saying with like it being kind of this modern uh, counter to or um, reaction to industrial agriculture um, by landowners or like uh, agricultural researchers, I think were the, was the case of Mollison and Holmgren. Um, you know, in a sense, like there weren't, even in the 70s or 80s, there weren't women in that position. There weren't people of color in those positions. And in order for any sort of academic piece to, to take form, it's like, those are the people who, those are the people who were, were there. And for these messages to come out there, in a sense, the- there were. There- I mean, it,
0: the majority the, is not women or people
3: of color. Right. Ooh, um, so in a sense, in terms of the history, it's sort of, you know, it's a product of its time and place. And then the, the way that it has gotten established is kind of born out of that context. Um, and then a part of the conversation we've been having recently is sort of trying to recognize and see this succession where those pioneers have done a lot of work. They've established um, some really amazing sites. They've done a lot of learning uh, we were able to move forward in a lot of different ways very quickly on our project because of the mistakes of those who came before us and those who were willing to experiment. Um, and in a sense, we will continue to experiment, but we very much feel like we're sort of a next generation um, and we're still effectively countercultural, but perhaps there's a little bit more of an openness within. Our broader culture to some of these ideas, whether that's through a local food movement or organic movement or um, sustainability movement and such, um, and so it's a little less of the hard scrabble uh, pioneering approach. And, and I don't know what what kind of plant we are. Are we like a bramble or a blackberry or like a snowberry bush or <laughs> something slightly softer and more succulent? <laughs> so I guess in terms of the history, it's we are viewing it as sort of this progression of different sort of uh, characters um, and and in a changing context and then sort of this ongoing feedback between the two. Or maybe that's how I view it, how do you view it?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, that's a whole concept that we're, I mean, part part of why we talk about that is because, I mean, Barrett, you said, Permaculture—the uh, term was coined by some old white guys, you know—and then the, even what I—I I didn't know Bill Mollison myself, but those who I know who knew him and just the the general account of him is that he wasn't—he was, was also—he was a rough guy. He was like a bit of a rough character. <laughs> so that's kind of <laughs> what like what we're talking about, and and then many stories we've heard, uh, and so what we've seen, just kind of the um a little bit of a little bit more of a challenge with the with some of the social side of things and, and really a lot of the projects that the what makes the bullocks for example unique is that they have been able to sustain their community and a lot of projects get going in the permaculture scene by these strong these like forceful actors who are real tough um they but but they don't they they often don't they're not able to sustain because they don't they can't work on the social level they can't cultivate sensitivity to <laughs> to different sorts of people and continue to to integrate and fold in other people <clears throat> so then you i but i was wanting to kind of like link back t- more directly to your question barrett which was about uh permaculture now be, being increasingly pulled in and referenced in academia and the, the gentrification of that process. And yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know that, I don't know that per, per, in a way permaculture is being gentrified, but permaculture was, wasn't Hasn't been particularly good at any point in its history, as far as I understand it, at at being. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just I'm trying to think about gentrification as it specifically applies to permaculture. It's true that bringing it into academia and Doug Bullock has talked about this with us plenty, where he's kind of like, you know, like, what does it mean to have it be like an academic thing and. It needs to be like rooted in hard skills and it shouldn't be, you know. I think he might say something more like co opted or probably not even co opted. What would Doug say? (laughs) I don't think he'd use the word (laughs) gentrified. You can't
3: learn it in a book. Like, it has to be lived, it has to be experienced. And so it it fundamentally can't become exclusively an academic pursuit without otherwise it yeah i think yeah. co-opting or yeah. decontextualizing it or d- totally totally missing it mm-hmm. you
0: know but but honestly even though the the way permaculture has up until recent years as it's being wrapped into university it's been taught the way that it's instructed is to be taught in these um Two or three-week courses is the most typical introduction that people have to permaculture. And at the end, you're called a designer and given a certificate. And that's really just a whirlwind. Someone's up at the front of the classroom talking. And when Bill Mollison taught, it was entirely in the classroom. He didn't do hands-on stuff. The Bullocks do do, they try to do a fair amount of hands-on with their design courses. Uh, so I don't know how much uh, like more hands-on the PDC, the permaculture design certification course, is uh, then, and then some of these academic classes. But yeah, those of us who kind of are able to keep working with it, I think, have had to have some apprenticeship or skill building that's hands-on. And yeah, hand, and yeah, the other side of that I would say is that I, my, the entirety of my undergraduate experience was very academic and there was value in that. There's value in thinking thoughts and, and talking with peers and um, learning to, to kind of draw your ideas out and, and reading and expanding your conception of things. And, and there there's a place for that. I think there's a place for book learning, uh, classroom learning. And then it's, it's just like, how do we become whole people? Uh, and so having an opportunity to be able to do some actual hands-on stuff. And, and I don't know what the right word is. We're still fumbling through this because as it turns out, even though as it was explained to me, permaculture is supposed to be equally about culture as it is about agriculture, it, it really hasn't panned out that way. It doesn't, the culture side of things really doesn't get as much attention mm-hmm. and or analysis or explanation. And so you know it's even hard to have an exact word for it, but uh, but one of the biggest parts of our of our time living at the Bullocks was learning the the social side of things, how to work with other people, um, which happens for a lot of college students when they're living in dorms or in uh, group houses or what have you. You have to figure out some of that, but it's it's really accelerated when you're learning, working, and living together. <laughs> it's pretty intense.
1: Yeah, that that to me, I think, is the most, I would say, either academic or maybe accessible side of permaculture that it is not everybody has access to you know acres of land or an acre of land that they can you know manipulate and try and create a new culture um with but more the idea in permaculture of things have multiple purposes and are supposed to work together and the goal is to make it sustain as long as possible. And so I think an accessible, like you said, the social side of permaculture that can be transplanted even into, you know, urban communities or places that don't necessarily have land is the idea that communities should be um, functional and aspects of them should work for multiple purposes. um, Mm -hmm. And that yeah, more that sense of community is what's important and kind of a braidedness of things.
0: Yeah, the, and a lot of people who have some background in permaculture are moving in more and more to using the word resilient in place of permaculture. So like, a you know, like having a, yeah, resilient farm, resilient community, and that, that applies really well um i've been getting
3: in 2020 it
0: applies really well in 2020 (laughs) i even prior to 2020 i was uh getting pretty jazzed on uh neighborhood preparedness and how to have a more resilient suburban and urban neighborhoods and that you know there's some like really practical things and a lot but then a lot of it just comes down to how do you have uh, an effective network of humans to be able to look out for each other and respond
1: appropriately when
0: when someone or many people are in need
1: yeah that's a that's another really great um social or communal communal example of permaculture and how it can be placed and transplanted in every community
2: Thank you for joining us for part one of Barrett's interview, and please stay tuned for episode two coming up soon. This has been the New Roots Community Radio Hour.